Hi there, I'm Georgie Ainsley, and every week I talk to someone who is a performance person. They could be an athlete from the world of entertainment, business, or politics. They could even be an astronaut. The key link is, of course, that they all know how to perform at the top level, and they can teach us all a thing or two about how to do that in our own lives at whatever it is that we do. Performance People is available wherever you get your podcasts, or of course, you can watch us on YouTube, where you can also subscribe. And please do. John McAvoy is a Nike athlete. He was previously a high-profile armed robber who found redemption through the power of sport. Having broken both British and world rowing records whilst in prison, he's now forging a new life as an endurance athlete and speaker, committed to using his story of rehabilitation to help and inspire others to change their lives for the better. It really took me from the darkness into the light and it's given me a positive life and a positive outlook on life and sport saved my life. It really, really did save my life. You know what? That's the thing about second chances, isn't it? It's, I mean, you must feel like you've been given the biggest second chance going. But how important it is for everyone else also to recognise that in other people and to give the second chances as opposed to be given them. To me, that's going to be my greatest achievement in life. Like, that really will. Like, that will be a legacy for me. It will be the fact that I've interacted with someone and made their life better. I can't tell you and I can't explain to you enough how much that man changed my life. Within 18 months, I set three world records and eight British records on the rowing machine. So, John, when I was Googling you ahead of this conversation, um, I stumbled across your website, as obviously I would, and there's a button on your nav bar which says redemption. Well, that struck me as, you know, fascinating just to begin with, because I don't think many people will have those. Just tell me why that's there, why it matters and what that word means to you, because I think without explaining that, we can't explain how you are where you are today. Yeah, the, 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 the word redemption and, and the button on my, on my uh, website, it comes from a point of my life where when I was younger, my life was really an absolute mess um it was a misspent youth a wasted youth um i spent 10 years of my younger life entombed incarcerated um and sport physical activity uh a, a mentorship of an incredible prison officer changed my life and and i can only say it really took me from the darkness into the light and it's given me a positive life and a positive outlook on life and sport saved my life it really really did save my life so when you were younger and you made those bad decisions, I mean, what, what, what were they? I mean, why were you where you ended up being, like you say, incarcerated for this sort of 10-year period and, and so much of your youth spent, uh, you know, inside the walls of a prison? Why, why did that happen? How did that happen? So, Georgie, I have to really go back to before I was born. So when my mum was eight months pregnant with me, she, my, my biological dad died at 38 of a massive heart attack. Um, so then when I was born into this world, I didn't have a parental father figure and like, I had the most loving childhood that a child could have. Like I was brought up by my mum, my sister, my mum's sisters, all my aunties. And I have not got one bad memory from being a child. Like I was so loved. But when I started going to primary school, I thought it was normal not to have a dad. And children used to start teasing me and I got upset one day and I went home and I asked my mum where my dad was. And my mum explained to me that my dad had passed away before I was born. So from a very young age, I understood that I wasn't going to live forever. And this lit something up inside of me as a child where 
I wanted to achieve something when I was an adult. Like I, I, I developed this real interest and fascination in history. And I used to read these books and magazines when I was a child on like people that had lived hundreds of years before me. And they had achieved something with their lives. And this had a profound impact over me and, and the fact that I wanted my life to have a meaning and a significance. And then as I got a little bit older, I sort of attached that significance to wealth. I grew up in the era of Margaret Thatcher and I remember watching the news and everything was about money and the eye and the self. And when I was eight years old, my mum, when she was much younger, was married to a, a, a man called Billy Tobin. And Billy got released from prison when I was eight years old. He just finished serving 16 years for armed robbery, and he was one of the most prolific armed robbers in the United Kingdom. He had five acquittals at the Old Bailey. He was a multimillionaire when he was 21 years old. Um, and he came into my life, not to have a relationship with my mum, because my actual sister was his biological daughter, but I didn't know that at the time. But I remember the first time I met him, I was just in awe of this man, and, and he never had a, a son, and I never had a dad. And we kind of got drawn to each other. And when he used to take my sister out on the, on the weekends, he started taking me out. And then he stopped taking my sister out, but he continued to take me out. And, and kind of he exposed me to this whole world of, of organised crime. And I was too young to really understand that a lot of these men and adults that I was associating with as a really young kid were, were organised criminals. But obviously being a kid when you're around grown adult men and they're very carefree, they hate the system... They're very affluent. Um, all the things that I wanted when I was older in regards of wealth, these men had it, and then it became an attainable path. And then when I was 12 years old, um, I watched a film on ITV, on Channel 3, and it was a film about my uncle. And my biological uncle committed the biggest armed robbery in the world, and he stole £26 million worth of gold bullion from Heathrow Airport. And that really impacted me when I watched that film, because... Again, as a young kid, it's all very exciting. And I didn't see the downside, like the fact that my uncle was in prison serving 25 years. And, and, and I, I just saw Sean Bean in a film playing my uncle. And all these men that are in my life in reality right now were all being played in this film. And, and it massively directed me into becoming a criminal. And, and that whole world of organised crime become completely normalised to me. And there, there was no other life. That was the life that I was going to lead. I was going to lead the life of the people that, that were around me. And, um, and that was the life I chose to lead. Yeah, it glamorised it, right? That glamorised it for you. Yeah, most definitely. Like, I, I always accept full responsibility for my actions. Like, I made, no one ever made me do anything I never wanted to do. But when you are in that world and it becomes so normal to you, that is life. Like you don't see another life. Like when I was a kid, I had no interest in sport as a child. I, 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 I love learning. I love going to school. Like I said, I love history. Um, but as I, as I grew older, that, that love of education started kind of sort of fell away a little bit. And in that whole world of organized crime, like hanging out with people that were, were kind of, yeah, just normalizing it to me and, and, and to a degree kind of encouraging it. And as a young boy, as a young man, it is very intoxicating and very exciting when you're around adults that are, are kind of glorifying that world. Um, and even though my mum did everything she could to pull me away from it, like my stepdad had an apartment on the Champs-Élysées in Paris and he's driving a £100,000 car, a Porsche 911. But my mum's working in a florist making minimum wage and my mum's telling me that crime doesn't pay. But I'm seeing the complete opposite. And when, when I was at secondary school, like, I can remember 
police officers used to come in and they used to come in with like a, a suitcase and they'd open it up and they'd say, if you commit crime and sell drugs, you're going to go to prison and you'll get a criminal record. But then the people that I'm going home to every night are all sort of incredibly affluent and wealthy through committing crime. And I'm not seeing what they're telling me is going to happen to me to a degree. So what happened? What landed you behind bars for that length of time? So when I was 22 years old, um, I got arrested for conspiracy to commit robbery. Um, and I was held in the HSU in Belmarsh Prison. So it's a high security unit. Um, the Metropolitan Police believed that I was, a, I was a very high escape risk, that someone was going to help break me out of prison. So I was held in this high security um, unit in prison. So it's a prison within a prison. Um, when I was in there, um, the 21-7 suicide bombers were in there and, and Sheikh Abu Hamza was fighting extradition to the US. So that was the level where the police thought I was going to try to break out. And, 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 I, and I would have done, like if I'd have had the opportunity, because I, had, I grew up with this tremendous hatred towards the system. It's very hard for me to verbalise it now because my life is so different and I haven't got that hate in my heart anymore. But I grew up detesting the system and hating it and I thought it was so rancid and corrupt. Um, so then when I was in prison, because of the way I was and, and the police believed other people would have helped me get out of prison, they, they held me in this sort of maximum security environment. And, and I went through a process of I was reading books every day. Um, I was ed exercising and kind of this is where my journey ex uh, of exercise began. Like I started doing cell circuits and I would do thousands of repetitions of each exercise. And, and like I said, when I was a kid, I had no interest in sport. But when I was in prison, that exercise in that cell being locked up for 23 and a half hours a day, it made me feel like I was a human being and it made me feel alive. Um, and also, again, Georgie, like I think back now, like what motivated me in that cell has led to the life I've got today to a degree, but it was, it was fueled by hatred. Like I wasn't training in that cell to get fit to become an athlete. I was training because it was, it was more defiance it, towards the system. Like you can take everything off me, but you cannot control my body and you can't, you can't stop me from doing this. Um, and little did I know that <laughs> I had this ability locked in my body that I didn't know I had. And by doing that, those cell circuits at the beginning, it was setting the foundations for the life I've got today. And sometimes there's this most extraordinary thing that happens, but you meet people who do completely change your life. And, and fortunately for you, you were incarcerated with this wonderful prison officer, Darren, weren't you, who really saw the potential in you and wanted to help you get to this new chapter, this fresh chapter of your of your life the next stage of your life so how did that sort of manifest itself because we just don't hear those sorts of stories very often yeah so basically I was I was like six years into to the sentence that I was serving I didn't want to change I didn't want to rehabilitate because I was brought up to believe that if you changed that you was weak and the system had broken you um, and that was that was pushed into me as a kid. Like you never surrender, you never quit. And to me, changing was quitting. It was it was it was the system had broken me and made me become something else. It took the death of my friend on the fourteenth of November in two thousand and nine. He died in a car crash committing a robbery in the Netherlands, and it was a profound moment in my life where I had lost someone that I deeply loved and cared for, and and I had never experienced this before. Like I, I'd known other people to die. But I'd never had that bond and that connection to this to, to these people. But with my friend Aaron that died, I deeply loved him and it affected me massively. And it was one of the very few times I can actually remember crying. 
Um, and I was completely lost because I, I knew from that night when my mate died, I'd never commit a crime in my life again. I looked at my own life and from that little kid that was growing up that was ambitious, that wanted to do something with his life, I was just literally rotting in a cage. And, and I looked how pathetic it was, like all of these people that I looked up to as a kid were old men or dead. And I, was, and, I, and I wanted something else for my life, but I genuinely didn't know what that thing could be. And the next morning, I went down into the communal eating area in the prison eating um, area where the prisoners had breakfast. And I just remember listening to inmates talking about when they got out, they were going to do this and do that. And I just thought, I cannot be around these people anymore. I have to get away from them. And I went down the prison gym and there was a, there was a prisoner on an indoor round machine called Mickey. And Mickey was a little bit overweight, but he had gym every single day. And in prison, you don't get gym every single day. You only get like three sessions a week. But he had a special note because he was rowing a million meters for a children's charity. And he said, if you ask if you can do it, they'll let you come down and you can get as much gym as you want. So I asked the prison officer, Craig, that ran ran the prison gym, and he agreed to it. He said, as long as you get some sponsorship money, you can come down and you, you can do what Mickey's doing. And... I just started rowing and the first session I did was 32 kilometers. It was 20 miles and it literally transcended me out of prison. Like it was like I created a portal that took me outside of that wall and the endorphins, well, I, like, I didn't know these words. I, I, it, the exercise and to that degree never sort of resonated with me. But when I was on that rowing machine, it was like the rowing machine become an extension of my body. And I went down the next down road, another 20 miles and another 20 miles and another 20 miles. And I rode the first million meters in a month. And I thought, this is amazing. I'm going to keep doing this. and It's going to get me to the end of my sentence. And then when I rode to four million, the prisoner said to me, you do realize if you do five, that's equivalent to running across the Atlantic on an indoor rowing machine. And I thought it was quite a cool thing to say <laughs> that I'd done. And then, and then I don't know what you can class this as now, if it was destiny or fate. But one day I did 10 kilometers as hard as I could. And I, I knew, Georgie, in prison I was fit. Like I was in this bubble and I knew in that bubble that like I was the fittest prisoner in that prison. And I knew within the prison system I had a reputation for being like really fit and really strong. But I didn't really understand, again, what an athlete was because I had no interest in sport. But I just knew in there I was physically better than everyone else. And when I rode this 10K, Darren Davis walked behind me, this prison officer, just as the 10k had finished and the monitor froze and he looked over my shoulder and wow that is super fast and and I like, I knew it was quick because I was in regards of other prisoners but I didn't realize how quick and then he went away and he got all of the British and world indoor rowing records on the indoor rowing machine and he gave them to me the next day and I went back to my cell and I looked at them and I thought they can't be real like they can't be real because I could already nearly break some of them at that moment and then I had this idea and I thought maybe they, the prison will let me try to break some of these records. And Darren went to the prison governor and he said, I think if you allow John McAvoy the opportunity to do this, this will change his life and it will set him on the right path. And, and, and the governor of the prison was a very Christian, religious man. And he agreed to it. And Darren sat with me when I went to break my first, or attempted to break my first ever record for the marathon. And I broke it by seven minutes. And I remember being on the gym mat in the gym prison gym floor. And when I broke that record, that marathon, and I set the new British record, everything I'd ever wanted as a kid to be good at something and to be successful, I felt it at that moment when I just accomplished what I did on that machine. And Darren went to me, you have an ability, not that you're fit, but you can suffer. And he went, if you come back to prison, it's the biggest travesty I've ever seen as a prison officer. He 
I can't tell you and I can't explain to you enough how much that man changed my life. Within 18 months, I set three world records and eight British records on the rowing machine. He used to come in on his days off from work and sit with me <laughs> to coach me, to support me. And he become like a he become like a father figure to me. Yeah. It was the most incredible thing because he genuinely wanted the best for me in a positive way. And there was no endorsement deals. There was no accolades in it for him. He just saw something in me and he supported me and he helped me and he changed my life. And, and I will f uh, forever be grateful for him. And he's become a dear friend of mine to this day. So isn't that refreshing to hear that version of an event, given where you've been and, and what you've had to go through to get here? Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting that you talked about before that you think that prison might have given you is the ability to tolerate boredom. And I think that's really interesting as well, isn't it? Because an endurance athlete needs to know how to do that really, really well, because the amount of training that goes into what they try and hope to accomplish and achieve requires you to really understand how to deal with boredom and repetition. Is, is that something that you really recognize as something that you've almost sub subconsciously been able to train yourself to do before you even found that you had the physical ability, you realized you actually mentally were, were right for this? Yeah, obviously, I wouldn't promote prison as a training tool no, for endurance athletes. <laughs> but I, I would, I would say yes, without doubt. When like I was in segregation in prison for three hundred and sixty-five days, and I, I probably spoke in all that time no more than ten hours in that time period of that year. Um, and when I was in that environment, yeah, like time. What is time? It, it becomes not. It's never ending. It, it's just like you drift from one day into the next. And and someone once said to me in prison that when you're in there, you, you don't live, you just exist. And it's just like one long day. And um, yeah, like I massively, even to today, like I, I, when I recently I did some ultra marathons and one of them was 116K and you're running for 12, 13, 14 hours. And people say like, what do you think about? But genuinely, it doesn't feel that long to me. Like it really doesn't. Like I sat on a rowing machine for two days and rode solidly. Like my concept of time has completely been warped. And also I genuinely believe in life. Every experience that happens to you, you can turn it into a learning and a positive. And, and I always say this about the journey I went through in prison. Like I deeply regret my behavior before I went to prison, but I do not regret the 10 years I spent in there because I learned so much about myself and I harness that situation to today so when things, again, they don't always go to plan. Sometimes you do stuff in life and it's hard and it's challenging. But prisons give me a great perspective on life and the fact of how fortunate I am to be alive and be free. And, it, and I always sort of have a tremendous amount of gratitude for my life today because going through that experience that I went through, and it was all self-inflicted, I put myself in there, but I, I wanted it to turn into a positive and, and, and use it as a springboard to set me up to live a happy, healthy life. But it's one thing going from training in that environment in the prison gym and breaking records and everything else. And then you've got to kind of convert all that learning and everything else and take that into the outside world. And like Darren said, it'd be a travesty if you end up back here. How did you make that switch? And how, where did the hatred go? Because the hatred was fueling and driving what you were doing. How did you switch that bit off but keep that competitive instinct? So it was a number of things. So like when, when my friend died, that was a big moment in regards of me realising my belief systems and the hatred I had towards the system 
how toxic and how, how destroying it was for my own soul and my, my myself. Like I was in this environment, I was entombed. I created this imaginary battle in my head against me and the system, me and the state that didn't actually exist. Like I accepted full responsibility. It was me that put myself in prison. Because I think sometimes when you go through that journey, a lot of people don't take responsibility for their own actions. So when my friend died and I had that awareness, that was where I would say a lot of the hatred abated. And then when I got out of prison, um, I was I was I was in an open prison the last 12 months. So I was able to go to the library every day and I was working in fitness first as a gym instructor and I was doing it voluntary. And, and I used, when I used to have my lunch break, they, I used to be able to go up to the library. So I'd be able to go on Google and stuff because all this stuff was like new to me, obviously, because I was in prison. I never had access to the internet. And I started like Googling like high performance rowing clubs. And there was one down in London called London Rowing Club. And it was in Putney. And it was a high performance center for lightweight rowers because I'm only 75 kilos and I'm not that tall. I'm like five foot eight. So obviously I started having a more of an interest in the sport of rowing because I thought the transition was going to be set all these records in the indoor rowing machine and join a rowing club when I got out. And my dream was like, I wanted to become a professional rower. That was what my dream was when I was in prison. It was to be a professional athlete, but more to be a professional rower. So I literally got released after being in prison for just under eight years I served. And then um, I got out on a Friday and on the Saturday morning, I was down at Putney on the embankment outside London Rowing Club. They never took novice rowers at the time. Um, but when the head coach was there, he, he used to have this, he had this saying about you can't coach what God's given you. And he used to believe he was big into physiology. And he believed if you had the physiology and the engine, he could coach you to row. And because I didn't tell him about my records or anything like that, because I didn't want anyone to Google me, he just asked me how quick I could row 2K and 5K. And I told him, and he asked me to do a test in front of him because he didn't believe me. And I did the test in front of him. He said, okay, you can, you have obviously got a very good engine. And he let me join the squad. And, and honestly, Georgie, it was so surreal. Like I was watching the London 2012 Olympics in prison. And then suddenly in September, I'm at London Rowing Club. And I had Sophie Hoskins on my left-hand side, and she was the first lightweight woman to win a gold medal at the Olympics. And Rob Williams, that was in the men's lightweight four, on my right-hand side, he won a silver medal. And I'm on this rowing machine on a Wednesday night, rowing next to an Olympic champion. But what was incredible was, like, these guys, they saw something in me, and they wanted to help me. And they knew me as John, right? And it was only after a few months people started to people started to basically look me up because they were like, there's no way this guy has just started around an indoor round machine in, in the local like gym and, and sort of he's this good. So people did Google me and my story started to come out and I wrote a blog. Um, and then when I wrote that blog about like my, the, the, the life that I'd led, the support I received within the rowing community was absolutely incredible. And people helped me so much, like coaches were taking me out to row on the water and then I was in an environment, I was in a high performance environment around high performance athletes. And, and they, they, they wanted me to be successful. And it was such an incredible experience, even for them as well, because I remember a couple of them said that they were glad what happened happened the way it did in, with me joining that club, because people would have had preconceptions about someone like me. And it broke them down because people couldn't believe that I'd spent like 10 years of my life in, in, in prison. Yeah, but you know what? That's the thing about second chances, isn't it? It's, I mean, you must feel like you've been given the biggest second chance going, but how important it is for everyone else also to recognize that in other people and to give the second chances as opposed to be given them. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I, and I would always say you can never, and you should never give up on people Like everyone in the right environment with the right people can 
turn their lives around and can go down a different direction. Like we've all got that power to do that. Um, sometimes some people are just not ready for it, but it doesn't mean you should give up on them. You should just be persistent. Like I've done programs and projects before with young people that's been very, very challenging and you do need the patience of a saint. But when you don't give up on people, it is incredible what they can change, what they can achieve with their lives. Like I would always remember when I was in that high security unit back in 2007, someone from um, the, the home office come into the prison because we were classed as high profile prisoners because there was terrorists on there. They had to come and do a check like every month. They would come onto the unit and just sit down with you and talk to you. And I remember this lady coming once and I was, I was trying to get off that unit to go onto the main house block because in my head I was like, I want to get out of here as quick as possible. And I was like thinking about trying to escape. But when she sat down and spoke to me, I said to her, I need, why am I on here? I shouldn't be on here. How can you justify keeping me in this environment where there's terrorists on here with me? And she looked at me, smiled, and she said, people like you don't change. She said, we're not stupid. We know the first opportunity you will get to run for that wall, you'll take it. At that moment, she was right. But in regards to the change element, she was wrong. And, and people can change. And I have seen change in other people. And I've seen Darren change the lives of countless other people. He's, I know I keep saying it, but he's such a beautiful, amazing human being. Yeah, he sounds completely remarkable. And like you say, he's clearly changed your life. What about you as well, being able to change the life of other kids? I mean, you mentioned briefly that thing of working with some children on some programs. I mean, you must get a real kick, a real sense of, of pride out of helping other kids now who you can see might take sliding doors moment they may turn right they may turn left and trying to avoid doing the wrong thing I mean how do you how do you sort of navigate that and what are you involved with with young children what do you get out of speaking to them about your story and, and what to do and what not to do yeah do you know what like up to this point everything I, I've been speaking about was always about me it was always about me becoming a millionaire and being wealthy and it was about me being, in, be, being a, a good athlete and, and, and receiving accolades and winning medals and trophies. And what happened when, when I got out of prison, I, I kind of was, was fixated on being an athlete. And, and sometimes being an athlete, it, it requires you to be incredibly selfish, right? Because it is about mm. you and it's about you being successful and you need to channel your energy into whatever it is you're doing to be the best at it. But what was a real pivotal moment for me like I never saw, because again, it's my life, like I've lived it. So to me, I, I'm not, I don't, and I don't think I'm anything special. It's just the way my life played out and I've made decisions, but it is my life, right? And I never realised the impact that that story would have on other people. And I got asked to do some school talks back in like 2014. And Georgie, it completely changed me. I, I couldn't believe like how like I could hold young people in the palm of my hand and how malleable and susceptible they were to everything I was saying. And I used to do like full school assemblies with like 200 kids. And the teachers at the end were just, they couldn't believe the kids would just sit there in silence listening. And then I'll go into prisons and like I wrote an autobiography and we gave 3,000 copies of my book. So every young offender in the UK got a copy of my book in their prison cell during lockdown. And I, I wanted to try to show them that even though they were locked down in prison, they could still use that time to better themselves. And then the amount of people's like mums and dads were sending me emails saying, my son got a copy of your book and they now want to be a personal trainer. Like to me, that's going to be my greatest achievement in life. Yeah. Like that really will, like that will be a legacy for me. It will be the fact that I've interacted with someone and made their life better and their and their children's children's lives will be better because they interacted with me 
And recently I created a project called the Alpine Run Project. Um, I was very fortunate, again, that sport took me out to the mountains and I, I was able to locate in the Alps. And I, that, that's now where I live. And when I was there, yeah, like I felt that sport brought me to that place. Like cycling brought me there. And, and when I was there, I, I wanted to create an opportunity and a, and a vehicle where I could bring inner city kids that haven't had the best starts in life and show them how big and beautiful that the world is. And I took a group of 14 kids this year and we trained them up over eight months to take part in a, in a sports event in Chamonix called the UTMB. Um, it's a trail running race. And to watch the journey that these kids went through was truly remarkable. Like one of the young girls, Nimra, she's from Newcastle, never got on a train until the 1st of March and she's 18 years old. And then a couple of the other kids grew up in foster care. One young kid, David, had 16 families before he was 14 years old. It, it, it was just amazing to give these kids an opportunity to see how big and beautiful the world is. And now at the end of it, the fact that they want to inspire other people from their communities to dream bigger and also for themselves, like they now know how big and beautiful the world is. And we've unlocked a lot of opportunities for them. And now suddenly they want to be engineers. They want to be athletes, a couple of them, and, and a couple of them want to be vets. And it's just made them think bigger outside of their yeah. postcode. And um, yeah, I would definitely put that up there as one of my biggest achievements. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely should. I mean, we've we've got a charity as well, um, my husband and I, that that we're involved with. And we're trying again to harness the power of sport and to sell that to young people so that they feel like there's there's opportunity that, you know, and it's not just about being an athlete. It's about being an engineer or being part of that team in many different forms and, and however many different ways that comes designers, engineers, um, boat builders, all sorts of different ways that you can make that happen. And you don't, you know, until you actually see that and you manifestly see it in a kid, just like take one person. We had a little kid who, um, who came to work through our, our STEM crew program. And he never saw his siblings except for in that program because they were all in separate foster homes. And you think that one opportunity galvanized them as a family and brought them back together again just in that moment? It's, it's, it's tragic and it's heartbreaking, but it's also heartwarming because you can see the good it's doing, can't you? Hmm. No, definitely. Mm. Again, I, and I do genuinely believe when you have that sense of purpose in your life like that and you see how you can light people up, young people in particular, and give them those opportunities that genuinely changes the trajectory of their lives, you realise what life is about. Yeah. You really, really do, and it resharpens and refocuses it. Like The sense of pride I felt watching those young kids running through that finishing line in Chamonix, I've never, ever, ever felt anything like it. I genuinely felt so protective over them. Mm. Like They all come running at the end towards me and, and it was the most incredible feeling I've ever had in my life. It genuinely was the best couple of days of my life, watching the end of that project, watching those kids running through Chamonix, through that finishing line, and how much it meant to them and how much they'd grown in confidence. Like at the beginning, a lot of them were quite introverted. They were timid. And then we had a film premiere of a documentary that we did on the project two weeks ago. And the young people were standing up on stage hosting the evening. And there was like 150 people in the cinema and there were people that were part of the project at the beginning and they never saw the kids until the end. And they just couldn't believe they were the same groups of kids. They genuinely could not believe that that group of kids were the same group that they saw in March, what that they saw in, in November because of how much they grew through the opportunities. And again, through positive mentorship, being consistent in their lives. Don't promise, don't promise them things that you can't back up, being consistent with everything you say to them. 
and, and, and being that that sort of father figure to them, really. What I want to ask you is, it's, it's, it seems trite, actually, after what we've spoken about, you know, an everyday performance tip for people. But, you know, your experiences of being inside and now being, you know, back being able to do whatever you want to do in society again and having that sense of freedom and real freedom. Um, what what would you say to people about how they live their lives every day or what, something that you do every day that maybe you did on the inside and you do on the outside or maybe not, but something that you do every day that just centers you, that gives you that sort of that sense of purpose in order to perform like you can as an athlete, but also as a human being. I, I would say the biggest one would be gratitude and being thankful for what I've got. Um, I'm not saying about not stifling people's ambitions because obviously everyone always wants to grow and develop and we should all do that but I think I was guilty of it in the past I was constantly over searching and no matter what I did I, I would finish a race and have a good race and think straight away when's the next race and I would never really be present and in the moment and I, and I think being present in the moment having gratitude for the life that I've got the fact that I'm physically able to do the things that I do and having a real appreciation for that, I think really does center me day to day. Um, and also just being mindful as well, like being conscious and, and aware of yourself and what you're doing. Um, like, again, we all get frustrated sometimes. Like the other day I got a parking ticket <laughs> and for, for a moment, like you're like, ah, oh. and then you think, you know what? There's far worse things in life. It's just the parking ticket. And, and then it's just catching myself in those moments and not letting it run away with me and me getting really angry. And in that sort of incident, making me have like a, a bad morning because I'm in a bad mood because of a parking ticket. So it's just being, I, I'd say, just being constantly aware of the present and the moment. And really, that's all you've ever got in life and having gratitude for your life and your health and your fitness. Um, because basically, that is life, right? That is life. Like, it's the moment. It's the now. And, and I learned that in prison. Like, I just had to center myself every day in the moment because if I sat there at the beginning thinking... I've got three and a half thousand days of this. I, I, would, I would have gone mad. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we don't do it nearly often enough because we're constantly thinking about, I think everyone who is, you know, in this mindset of busy professional people are just always thinking about what's next. You just got to sometimes just live in the here and now, like you say. Thanks, John. It's been fascinating speaking to you. Thank you. And I'm so pleased as well that you've, you've got this legacy piece with the kids coming through because it feels like you've got so much to offer them. I'm really, I'm really happy that that's happened for you because it's, it's fantastic for them too. Thank you very much. And it's lovely talking to you. Yeah, you too. 